We have a proclamation. I want us to stand and say it together. Let's stand. It's based on Matthew 22, 37 to 39. Are you ready to read it together? Okay, let's read it. I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. I will love my neighbor as myself. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father, I present myself to you again and ask that you will take this vessel. Lord, I pray that I will be a vessel of honor, not only today as I stand before your people, but in my daily walk and in my daily living. That which you've put in my heart, I pray you would help me to deliver with clarity, challenge, uplift, deepen our relationships with you, O oh God. And may that be expressed in practical Christian living, Lord, to our neighbors, Lord, and to those who are in need. For this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Please be seated. Last week, we looked at the sin of partiality, how we treat others sometimes based on their external appearance. And I tried to make three points. First one being that when we do that, we hijack God's authority. And we choose who is valuable. When we show partiality, secondly, we can be siding with our oppressors and even God's enemies. And thirdly, the scripture makes it very clear that partiality is sin. This week's theme is faith in action. And James is developing the same idea of genuine faith. The idea that if you claim to have a living faith in Jesus Christ, that faith ought to be producing something in your life. There should be evidence of an authentic faith in the life of believers. I'm talking about a faith that comes into the life of an individual who receives Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. And one's heart is transformed and one's mind is renewed. I'm not talking about reformation. Because, you know, reformation can be reversed. I'm not talking about trying to be a good person. Trying with all your heart and effort to please God in that sense. I'm talking about being transformed from the inside, which then has an impact on how we live out our lives and can be seen tangibly by those that we come into contact with. So James is saying that faith that produces nothing really is no faith at all. If we have saving faith, works will flow out of that saving faith. So in this passage, James is making an argument based on evidence. He's not saying that evidence saves you because we can't be saved by works or else the cross of Christ will be rendered null and void. And Brother Phil two weeks ago made this 
quite clear that, you know, there will be someone that day of judgment that will say, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do all these good deeds? Didn't we do these works in your name? And the Lord will say, depart from me. I don't know you. So we're not saved by works. Neither is it faith and works that save us, or even faith or works. But we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But James is saying that that saving faith produces evidence. So it's not the faith that comes from works or good deeds. But if we are saved, our faith will work. Our overarching theme is faith that walks. So if we are saved, we will walk that out. Works don't save you. But because you are saved, you work. You do good deeds. Amen? Now there's a tension sometimes that uh, people draw from various passages. And in particular, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when contrasted with uh, James 2, 14, going down to the end of that chapter. I'm going to just try and clarify that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Paul, he's saying here that you are saved by grace, not by works. But James says in James 2.26, faith Without works is dead. So you may ask yourself, well, which is it then? Are we saved by grace or are we saved by works? Well, I want to say that these statements are not contradictory, but they rather complement each other. Simple way to look at this is to say that Paul is talking about the root our faith, and James is talking about the fruit of faith. Paul is talking about the root of faith. When you become a born-again believer, something takes place on the inside of you that is invisible really to those who are looking on. They can't necessarily see that your heart has been regenerated and changed. But James is talking about the fruit of faith. In other words, as a result of that change that takes place on the inside, there should be a progressive bearing of fruit which can be seen, which is evidence, and this fruit should remain. So the scripture is teaching us that we are saved by faith alone, by accepting and receiving Jesus as the solution to our sin problem. But as a result of being saved, there is going to be the progressive bearing of spiritual fruit that remains. In other words, we can ask ourselves the question today, is there evidence, if you look at your life, is there evidence that your heart has been transformed and that faith is working in your life? 
Because remember what we have been saying for the past few weeks, that you can deceive yourself into thinking that you are born again, you're a Christian, you are saved. You can con yourself. James is saying, if you want to know that you're saved, if you want to know you have saving faith, look for evidence in your life. The transformation will be evident in what we say, what we do, and how we think. Amen. I want to look at faith. Thank you for that, child. Let's say amen down the back there. Still got my amen corner intact. I want to look at faith that cannot save. Sometimes to make uh, something clear, if you look at what it isn't, sometimes it helps you to understand what it really is. So faith that cannot save. James begins by asking a question, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? The key phrase here is in the second question, Can such faith save him? So James is asking, Does a faith that does not impact the way we live constitute Genuine faith. And I would say, and the scripture would say, no. Remember we mentioned last week about genuine faith and a veneer of faith. We're talking about faith which cannot save. That's the veneer. And I want to just mention a few examples, not an exhaustive list. But look at faith that cannot save, faith that is dead. The first one is faith that is merely intellectual. Just having knowledge will not save anybody. You can have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, about God and his word. You can even be a Bible scholar. How many of you know that there are Bible scholars teaching in some universities who are not Christians? They just love the subject matter and what they're teaching, but they're not born again. Some of them don't even profess to be Christians. So knowledge alone, a mere intellectual assent to the word of God is not the type of faith that saves. It's, it's, it's a dead faith. In the same chapter of James 2 in verse 19, James proves this point by declaring that even demons believe. Demons are probably better theologians than we are. They know God. They know the word of God. They know that God is almighty. Satan and his hosts know the truth and believe the truth about God. Listen to what this commentator Warren Wearsby writes. It comes as a shock to people that demons have faith. What do they believe? For one thing they believe in the existence of God. They are neither atheists or agnostics. They also believe in the deity of Christ. Whenever they met Christ, when he was on earth, they bore witness to his sonship. They believe in the existence of a place of punishment, according to Luke 8.31. And they also recognize Jesus as judge, according to Mark 5.1-13. They submit 
to the power of his word. So demons have an informed theology, but that theology has not impacted and changed the direction of their lives. They do not have faith that saves, and as a result, they will not be in heaven. So intellectual capacity or knowledge of the word of God is not the type of faith that saves. Neither is faith that is based on emotions. Faith that is based on emotions does not save. And I'm not saying here that there's anything wrong with emotional expression, but that alone does not save. You know, sometimes we do sense the presence of God. We may become tearful, uh, repentant of our sins and, and so on. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that alone does not save just because you have a feeling or you have goose pimples. It doesn't guarantee you have saving faith. Again, James says in verse 19 that the demons, they have an emotional response. It says they believe and they shudder. <laughs> it doesn't mean if you're shuddering, you have saving faith. It doesn't mean if you come to the altar and you bawl out your eyes, doesn't mean you get up saved. It's not just about emotions. That doesn't mean or guarantee that we have saving faith. But it's those who receive the truth of God's word and have been transformed in their heart. Those are the ones who have saving faith. Faith that is pious but not practical does not save. James illustrates another kind of faith that does not save where he says, it is a faith that says to a person who is hungry and without clothes, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing to meet that person's need. Religion, being pious, that type of faith doesn't save either. Imagine if I was coming to church, it was only me alone in the car, and I saw one of you at the bus stop, and it's raining. And I have enough time, so I indicate, pull up alongside you, wind the window down. Say, God bless you. You going to church? Me too. I agree with you that God will send somebody to give you a lift to church today. Can I get an amen? God bless you. Me gone. That's pious, religious faith. Faith must have a practical outworking. It's not just about what we say, but we have to have practical good deeds. If we see someone in need, and I'm not saying we can meet every need that we come across, because we can't. But when it's within our power to meet a need and help somebody, we should help. Do you agree? So there must be a practical expression of our faith. That's faith that is genuine. And then there are other examples which I won't spend much time on, but faith that is placed on someone or something other than Christ will not save. People have faith in their own ability, in their own goodness, 
that type of faith will not save. People have faith in faith. So there are some preachers that tell you the reason why you're sick, you haven't got enough money, because you haven't got enough faith. The scripture does not teach that those things happen to us and that everything will be all right if we have enough faith. If we can manufacture enough faith, that type of faith doesn't save. And any faith that even if it focuses on you, manufacturing faith, it focuses on somebody else, any faith that's not centered on Jesus Christ, any faith will not save. Amen? Because we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. So let's look at real faith, faith that saves. James says, I have faith and you have deeds. So you can say, can't we just agree to disagree? James understands that this is not simply a question of semantics. This is essential to understand. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. James' point is that without a change in the way we live, we are living contradictory to the Word of God. Real faith means embracing Christ as our Savior and as our ruler and leader in life. If we claim him as our Savior, we must follow him as our master and king. It means trusting him in our day-to-day living. So what does this kind of faith look like? Well, James uses two examples from the Old Testament. One of a patriarch, Abraham, some call the father of faith. And the other example is of a Gentile, Rahab, who uh, lived in Jericho. So I'm going to look at those examples quickly. Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, and this is where James is quoting from in this passage. In fact, his name wasn't Abraham then, his name was Abram, which means high and exalted father. And God makes a promise to Abram that he's going to be the father of many descendants. At this time, we reckon Abram was about 70 years old and he had no children. So what did God do? He changed his name from exalted father to father of a multitude. Changed his name to Abraham. Can you imagine that? Everybody's calling him Abraham, father of a multitude. God has a way to build our trust in him, doesn't he? So people have been calling him this for 30 years because then if we skip down to Genesis 22, which is about 30 years later, after God changed his name to Abraham, and everyone's been calling him Abraham, Abraham receives the promise of a son called Isaac when he was close to 100 years old and his wife was about 90 years old. 
And of course, this summed them in their pride and joy. But one day, God requested of Abraham to take his son to a mountain to offer him up as a sacrifice, indeed, on Mount Moriah. The next morning, the scripture says that Abraham got up, took his son, and made that journey. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Abraham must have reckoned that God was going to do a miracle, that even if he did sacrifice his son, God would have raised his son back to life because he was a promised son, and he named him a father of a multitude. Perhaps Abraham didn't understand why God was asking him to do this. But you know what? He obeyed the command, and he went to the mountain, trusted God, and we know that he didn't actually sacrifice his son, but he went as far as almost doing that. The Bible says that because Abraham did this, he was justified by faith. An important word, justified. It means he was vindicated, revealed to be, shown to be, proven. So Abraham was justified. So people saw of him not just what he professed as his faith, but he proved and was vindicated to be the father or patriarch, that man of faith that had trusted God and believed God. The second example is of Rahab. The scripture describes her as a harlot or as a prostitute. And this story is found in the book of Joshua, where the children of Israel have been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. They're about to cross over the river Jordan. And the first city that they would conquer would be the city of Jericho. And we know from the scripture it was a walled city. Everybody in Jericho knew of the God of Israel. They had heard of all the mighty acts he had done. The crossing of the Red Sea and all of that. How he provided for them in the wilderness. And they also knew that anyone that came up against the Jews were destroyed. So can you imagine the children of Israel crossing the Jordan and walking around Jericho? They, were, they would have been terrified. They, they're thinking, you know, we're gunners because we cannot stand against this God. And no doubt Rahab would have known this as well. But instead of being in fear and succumbing to defeat, she had faith. And she said, you know what? I'm going to believe this God of Israel and believe that he's going to save me and my household. So we know that Joshua sent two spies into Jericho. And by this time, we can surmise that Rahab was no longer a prostitute because the scripture tells us she had a house on the city wall. You have to have money to buy a house on the city wall. That's prime real estate. And she'd given up that kind of living and was probably a farmer because the scripture tells us that she was drying out flax on her roof. That's what the farmers did. They put flax and vegetables on the roof to dry out to the point that by faith she received the spies 
hid them under the flax and also provided a way of escape that they were able to leave Jericho. Understand, this must have been a very, very brave thing to do. Because she must have known that the intelligence in Jericho, I mean, they had tracked the spies down to her house. So they knew they were, they were in her house somewhere, they just couldn't find them. You know, but she was a very courageous woman. And she saw this through to the end and the, the spies escaped. And because of that, because she had faith in God, as a result of her action, we know that when uh, the armies of Israel began to attack Jericho, Rahab and her family were saved. And what's remarkable, she is found to be in the scripture in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The point that James is making in looking at these two illustrations is that if you have true faith, genuine faith, there will be an action. Jesus says this several times. He said that if we follow him, we will bear fruit. He says, in fact, if you want to know who somebody is, Look at the fruit of their lives. You don't have to ask so many questions. Just look at how they're living. That will tell you who they are. Jesus also said, those who hear his word and obey them are like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the floods come, tests come, you will not be destroyed because you obey the word of God. Going back to the scripture that we said together when I started. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that's a very, very important scripture. In fact, in terms of our vision for this church, we are hanging our vision Passion for God, compassion for people. It's hung on Matthew 22, 37 to 39. And why it's so important? Because when we're looking at genuine, saving faith, you may be saying to yourself, well, I want to have that kind of faith. So I'm, I'm going to really try and bear good fruit and love my neighbor and do as many good deeds as I can. And that's a noble thought, but that's not, the, that's not the way to live out your faith. The way to really live out your faith is to get as close to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Get as close to God. Get as deep in God. Learn as much as you can about God. And then you'll be able to love the people that don't love you. <laughs> you see, if you do it the other way around, you see, you will love them today and tomorrow you're cursing them. It's not by our own efforts and our own labor that we live out this faith and produce these righteous deeds. The key is not in me 
trying to reprogram and renovate my mind by saying lots of positive things and trying to think positive. That's not the key to living out this saving faith. The key to it is getting closer to God. So what am I saying? If you are having struggles, you know it's, it's hard work living with people. Say amen, Sonia. <laughs> you take me easier to live with. <laughs> it's hard work. But the key to faith that saves, faith that walks it out, faith that works is not in me or you trying in ourselves to do that. This scripture is a key. Love the Lord your God. What am I saying? Let's, let's get practical here. If you are having difficulty forgiving somebody, you don't have to muster up the effort. Get closer to God. Get deeper in God. Spend more time with God. Spend more time in prayer. Spend more time in meditation. You know what will happen? You'll come at a point in time where you're just forgiven. You probably don't even realize you've done it. Those people who are getting on your nerves, getting up in your face, rubbing you up the wrong way. And sometimes you feel like you'd almost hit out at them. You want to know how to love them? Get closer to God. When we are closer to God, we will love the people that God has created. That's why we love you so. <laughs> I said it before for me, you will get hurt. But if you are close to God, God begins to pour out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. A love that is not ours, not self-manufactured. It's the love of God that we can walk in that love. And it says, then we can love our neighbor as we love ourselves. I wonder if we could just think for a while. I want us to examine our hearts. Ask yourself this question, am I saved? Do I have true, genuine faith that saves? Was there a time in your life when you realized that you were a sinner, lost without God? You know, I became a Christian because my friend became a Christian. He went to the altar one night, knelt down and got saved. And I said to myself, well, if he can do that, I can do it. Just that action and kneeling down and copying my friend is not what saved me. There was a point in my life where I realized I am a sinner. The weight of my sin was bearing on me and I realized that without Jesus Christ and his forgiveness, I'm lost forever. I wonder if you've experienced that. Have you ever been troubled by your sin? Have you ever done anything wrong and it's plagued you and troubled you or 
you just brush it aside and get on with life. If you've been troubled by sin, that's an indication that yes, you're alive in Christ and you have faith that will save you. If perhaps you just go from one wrong to another and it doesn't play in your conscience, on your mind, that's what James is saying. That faith is dead. That faith is a corpse. Lifeless. It won't save you. Genuine faith impacts our lifestyle. And what does our lifestyle tell us about faith? You know, as Christians, I believe often we should be in a place where what we believe is contradictory to what popular opinion says. That's another indication you've got saving and genuine faith. If you're just flooring with the world and anything goes and anything that they agree with, you agree with, and any dancer do you fall in line and everything. I don't know about you, but often my faith is at odds and with what I see going on in the world, and I go, uh-uh. My spirit don't agree with that at all. I'm not stomaching that. That's an indication you have faith that will save you. But if you're just flowing with the stream of time and anything goes, we need to examine ourselves, examine our values and our priorities. Is anybody getting anything out of this? If, in thinking today in this sanctuary, I'm not sure if I'm saved, I have good news for you. Today, there is an opportunity for you to commit your life to Jesus Christ. To confess your sins to him on the basis of his death. And resurrection, you can be pardoned of all your sins if you put your whole trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps all of us, before we pray, should just ponder this and think in our hearts do I know I am really saved? Does the Spirit bear witness? Let's not deceive ourselves, brethren. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking because we come to church, we dress the right way, we know the songs, we can quote the scripture, and all these things that we are saved. Faith without works, faith without corresponding action, faith without evidence, faith without bearing fruits that remain will not save. It's a dead faith. We need to make sure this afternoon that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, that we are genuinely saved. And let me say, you know, in my life I have seen a progression in terms of how I live. So if, you know, me before Christ and me after Christ is the same, there's something wrong there. The cross of Christ is of no effect. If me now and me three years ago is the same, there's still something wrong. Because my life should be being conformed. The imprint of Christ 
should be seen in my actions, in my words, in the way I conduct myself. As I draw closer and closer to God. Sometimes you feel like you're close to God and you discover, you know what? I am way off. So there must be a, a progressive modification of our behavior and us becoming more and acting out and walking and living out more like Jesus. Sometimes we don't take time to look at ourselves. We're just going merrily on our way. But today God's calling us to examine our hearts and let the Holy Spirit shed his light on our ways. And my prayers are all of us will be drawn closer to God as a result of this word that I've shared today. If you're here and maybe you've never received Jesus Christ ever before in your life, I want to let you know that you will only be saved by placing your trust and faith in Jesus. Your good deeds, your good works, trying to make yourself better will not save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ alone will save you. Your parents' salvation, that can't save you. Coming to church can't save you. Singing the right songs can't save you. Only those who put their trust in Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness of your sin will be saved. If you're here today and you want to accept the invitation to receive Jesus Christ right where you are, I would want you to just indicate by raising your hand. God bless you, my sister. Let's give God praise. Without this saving faith, in eternity you will be lost. There will be no second chance. Today is a day of opportunity. doesn't matter all the good that you've done. You can stack them up and bring them to God and say, God did all of this. He's going to ask you, did you put your faith and trust in the resurrected Christ? That's what he wants to know. Anybody else who wants to take up that opportunity? Okay, we give God praise. Amen. My sisters. In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. I'm a new creation. New creation. In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Hallelujah. 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 Just declare this with me. Lord, help me to love you. With all my heart, help me to love you. With all my mind, help me to love you. With all my soul, I submit to you today, Lord. 
draw me nearer to you and show me practical ways to go deeper in you in Jesus name Amen if you believe that simple prayer just give God thanks Hallelujah Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Lord, for your presence in the midst of us today. You're doing your thing, Lord. Hallelujah. Bless the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hold on to that passage, James. Chapter 2, 14 to 26, and particularly Matthew 22. Let's draw nearer to God. It's going to make a massive difference in the way that we live our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let's give God praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.